Welcome to session six of At Your Cervix, the podcast with co-host Gwenya Donnelly and Emma Brockwell. Welcome back, everybody. We are so excited for today's discussion. As everybody knows, the aim of our podcast is to lift the lid on all things pelvic health and bust taboo. And I actually think today's topic is somewhat of a taboo within a taboo. We are building on our wonderful discussion from Therapy Live Pelvic Health, where we spoke to Jessica Pinn about all things clitoris and clitoral anatomy. Emma, what about Therapy Live Pelvic Health? It went really well, didn't it? I really enjoyed it. It was great. Um, I think the most exciting thing for me was seeing all the musculoskeletal physios um, and their interest in pelvic health. It wasn't just a pelvic health bias. Um, And it's nice because we're starting to see those silos coming together. So that was one of the most exciting things for me. And the other thing, though, I'd like to say about Pelvic Health Live is going forward, wouldn't it be great to have more men involved? Because I think... The majority of the audience were women, which is great. Um, But yeah, we need more men involved next year. So we've got to drive that forward, I think. And hopefully we've carried a lot of them over from our live discussion with Jessica to listen to this because this will be a bit more of a deep dive. So let's introduce Jessica. Jessica is coming to us all the way from San Francisco and she's an internationally renowned advocate for equitable coverage of clitoral anatomy in medical publications and curricula. Her journey of advocacy started on a personal level when she experienced trauma with her own experience of female genital surgery. She underwent a labiaplasty at the age of 18. We're really excited to have you here, Jessica, and to discuss this really important topic. I'd like to hand it over to you to give us a bit of a summary about your journey and why you've become an activist in this area. Yeah, so like you said, I had a labiaplasty when I was barely 18 years old. I sought a labiaplasty based on misinformation that I saw published online by doctors and also in peer-reviewed medical literature. Um, My labiaplasty was severely botched, my labia minora were completely removed, and a clitoral hood reduction was done without my consent. The nerves of my clitoris were damaged in the clitoral hood reduction, and I lost clitoral sensation permanently. My surgeon was an extremely reputable OBGYN who later became the president of the Texas Medical Association and the president of the Dallas County Medical Society. After my surgery, when I asked how it could have affected my sexual function and what could be done about that, I was told it was all in my head. Um, I just wanted to understand what happened to me and what could be done. So I did my own research and I learned the anatomy and I realized that OBGYNs were not learning it. And, and can I ask you why you elected for the labiaplasty in the first place, Jessica? So when I was 17, I did not know what a clitoris was or how to find it. So I got online and I was just trying to search to find out how I could find my clitoris. Um, which is really sad that at 17, I didn't know how to find it. I didn't understand what it was because I had never been taught. And I think a lot of women aren't taught. And that's when I learned the word vulva for the first time. All I had ever been taught was that I had a vagina. And I ended up on the Wikipedia page for vulva. 
and my vulva did not look like the vulva on the Wikipedia page. And so, you know, I looked at the diagram and I saw labia minora and I saw my labia minora were a lot bigger than the labia minora in the diagram. And so I Googled labia minora and a bunch of websites for labiaplasty came up. And when I did an image search for labia minora, before and after photos of labiaplasty came up and I looked like the before photos. I also clicked on the labiaplasty websites and I read that protruding labia minora are considered unfeminine and embarrassing. I read that large labia minora can be caused by aging, masturbation, sexual activity, and excess androgens, which are male hormones. None of these claims are supported by any evidence, yet they continue to be published in medical journals and textbooks to this day. (laughs) So that's one thing that I've been trying to change. It's incredibly frustrating. Many, many plastic surgeons have false information on their websites today in 2021. And this false information, in my opinion, does cause patients to seek surgery. At least I know I did. I know other women have other reasons. They may have insecurities that started long before they saw labioplasty mm-hmm. surgeon websites, but that's where my insecurities came from. I had no insecurities at all until I got on the internet. Oh, wow. It's interesting, actually, because I, I did a quick Google search before we came on to talk. Um, and I wanted to see what the five benefits of labioplasty were. And the five benefits are, apparently, improved vaginal aesthetics, increased comfort, increased level of sexual confidence, ability to wear uh, tight-fitting clothing, and enhanced pleasure. I mean, that's literally just a Google. That wasn't even me going into the website. That was just what was put on Google. And that must just that must just devastate you hearing that when you've been through what you've been through. Yeah, it really does. It's really crazy that they claim enhanced pleasure because what they're doing, even when labiaplasty is done correctly, they are still removing sexually sensitive tissue. So best case scenario, they're still removing sexually sensitive tissue that is actively involved in female sexual response that contains many nerve endings. Now, they have done outcome studies that have shown that many women perceive an improvement in their sexual function But that is because female sexual function is so dependent on how we feel about our bodies and how we feel about what we look like. So in my opinion, they are causing the sexual dysfunction by shaming women's genitals. And then they are solving that. But they're not not physically solving it. They're solving the psychological problem that they create. That's my opinion. It's a really um, loaded topic because I think that Emma will agree with me in clinical practice. We are pelvic health physical therapists, physiotherapists, and we see women for all sorts of pelvic floor dysfunction. And one of the biggest things we hear women say to us is, am I normal down there? Does that look normal? Because like you, many women Google what the vagina or labia or vulva looks like, and they don't identify with what they see. Or we have the problem of people basing designer vagina sort of um, perceptions on porn, which, you know what I mean? So we've got really unrealistic expectations of what female, the ideal female anatomy is. And 
because people don't show their vagina readily or we don't see them every day, people don't realize that they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and that they're as variable as breasts are or as bodies are or as hairstyles are. And I think that's a huge, huge issue. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. Um, Except I have a different view on porn. I actually wish that I had watched porn at age 17 because I have actually seen a lot of women in porn who have larger labia minora. And it was watching porn that led me to realize that what happened to me was really not okay. Because, you know, until I watched porn, I thought that I had really needed surgery. And I thought that my loss of sensation was just the price I had to pay to look normal, Um, which is kind of, it's so helpful to look back and realize that I felt that way. But basically I thought I needed that surgery. And after my surgery, I would beat myself up and I would say, Jessica, how could you do this to yourself? But then I would say, no, Jessica, you really needed that surgery. You had an embarrassing problem. And then at age 21, I saw porn for the first time. And I saw a lot of women who looked like I did before my surgery. And I thought, wait a second, why did this happen? And no one looked how I did after my surgery because no one has no labia minora at all. And what was really disturbing is my OBGYN at the time had told me that I looked normal, even though my labia minora were completely amputated. Wow. It's just, yeah, it's, it's actually quite uncomfortable to even hear that. Um, and it's disappointing and it's the messaging that's going out there for younger people. I think the advocacy work you're doing is incredible and we can talk a little bit more in a moment about some of the resistance and the I suppose, difficulties you're experiencing in that advocacy work. But one of the things I was really impressed about when I was um, trying to find out more about you was that you've actually answered one of the biggest communication barriers in this field by communicating on a level that the medical culture needs to be communicated with by carrying out your own study. Like, I think that's massive. And Emma and I are primarily clinicians, but we've dabbled a little bit in research and we know how difficult it is to get peer review published. So I would like to commend you on that incredible success. And I'd like to hear more about your study actually, and a little bit more about what you found out about the clitoris for anyone listening who doesn't fully understand about the clitoris. We've got an expert who knows. Um, So honestly, we primarily did our study so that I would have credibility um, because I was really struggling to get people to listen and take me seriously. Originally, I wanted to be involved in a study with OBGYNs. So there are two main reasons that we did our study. And one was so that I would have more credibility when approaching textbook authors and residency program directors and leadership in OBGYN and plastic surgery. Um, And the second reason is because in order to get anatomy disseminated in a given specialty, I think it's important for it to get published in that specialty's literature. And so, you know, getting it into a plastic surgery journal was a way to get more plastic surgeons exposed to the anatomy. Um, similarly, that's why I wanted a study done in an OBGYN journal. And I actually sent out over a hundred emails to OBGYNs asking who would want to do a study. And I had wanted to be involved, but I couldn't get any OBGYNs to want to do a study with me. (laughs) So I did one with my dad, who's a plastic surgeon. Um, I did 
convince Dr. Marlene Corton, who oversaw the study that was published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. It is now required learning for all urogynecologists as of, I think, just a couple weeks ago. It is also incentivized learning for all OBGYNs now. What's frustrating is that they didn't just make it required learning for all OBGYNs. Hopefully someday it will be. The research that we did was a little bit redundant because nerves in the clitoris had already been published previously. I mean, they were published in 1844. They were actually in a few anatomy textbooks, but they were not in OBGYN literature. They were not in OBGYN textbooks or journals. And they were missing from a lot of plastic surgery literature where they should have been discussed, right? So when plastic surgeons went to write about their techniques for clitoral hood reduction, they were not discussing where the dorsal nerves were. This is not always the case, but I think the first plastic surgeon to even mention the dorsal nerves was Dr. Christine Hamori, and that was in 2015. So before that, no one considered them. So that was something that I really wanted to change. Now, there are some surgeons who will say, of course, they knew where they were. But the problem is that, you know, a, a lot of surgeons, I think, were, have been attempting these surgeries without knowing. I still get messages from women who have been harmed and who, in the wake of their harm, have been told by their doctors, both plastic surgeons and OBGYNs, that it's not possible because the nerves are too deep to get injured in clitoral hood reductions. It is amazing how many surgeons who operate on vulvas don't know this anatomy and how many truly believe they know it, but what they know is incorrect. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? Oh my goodness. Because that is what happened with you. You went for a labiaplasty, but you ended up having a clitoral hood reduction as well. Can you tell us more about that? Because obviously then that helps us on the discussion about informed consent, which I don't think you had when that when that occurred. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Well, for one, I saw labiaplasty based on misinformation. Yeah. So I don't consider any of my consent valid. Okay. I was told there I was not told about any risks. All my doctor said was all surgery carries risks. When I asked him what my labia minora were for, he shrugged. I had read the peer-reviewed literature published at the time. It said no serious complications and no risk to sexual function. There was a website at the time, and it actually still exists, and I think it has the same content on it. It's called labiaplastysurgeon.com, and they say the labia minora play no role in sexual function. That's wrong, but they put it in all capital letters as if it would be stupid to think that they do. And they say that their content is approved by a number of surgeons. So I thought it was credible. It's incredible because if the same thing happened, I often think that if if the shoe was on the other foot and there was some compromise to male sexual function that we would hear much more noise about it. Um, Funny enough, in episode two, when we spoke to Lizzie Lee, who's an Olympic 
runner, she spoke about sexual function postnatal and the importance of it and the amount of women who are having issues with sexual function postnatal. And she highlighted that if the same thing was to happen to men, that it'd be on the five o'clock news where you'd be hearing about this awful thing that men are having to experience. So I sometimes think there's, there's something similar here. It's that idea of Yes, the surgery potentially carries no risk from a medical life-threatening way, but it carries significant risk to quality of life and the function of that area. And that's the thing that really needs to change. I think we all know that healthcare is continuously evolving and that's okay. There's things even within the physical therapy profession or physiotherapy profession that Emma and I would say have changed over the course of the last decade and we maybe do things differently, but that's where it's important to have evolved in healthcare. So in your case, when something is being highlighted like this, it's really important that the health systems answer to that and move forward. But am I right in thinking you've had some resistance and experienced some difficulty getting this message through? Yeah, there has been so much resistance. It's really been insane. And it's been like a full-time job trying to um, trying to get this anatomy included. There is fundamentally a lot of resistance to acknowledging that anything could be wrong with medical training, that anything could be wrong with the way things have been done. Um, I think, you know, one rationale is, well, we haven't been learning this anatomy and not many women have been getting harmed. So we clearly, we clearly do not need to learn it. But you know, what happened to me would not be in my medical record if I had not taught myself and taught the doctor who diagnosed me. (laughs) So in my opinion, ignorance really precludes any recognition of harm most of the the time. Um, Like I said, you know, women who contact me having also been harmed, tell me that their surgeons tell them it's all in their heads and that what what they say happened could not have happened. (laughs) So I think that most harm that's happening is not getting acknowledged by doctors and so they think that there's a lot less harm happening than there actually is i think that's a really valid point because sorry to interrupt you jessica that happens quite a lot in the realm of pelvic health because a lot of these issues simply are not spoken about so a lot of women suffer in silence and i think i mentioned at the beginning of this that this discussion is somewhat of a taboo within a taboo because why people are more openly speaking about pelvic health they don't tend to speak about the clitoris and get really into the nitty gritties of the anatomy because people think that it's inappropriate to talk about these sort of areas. And I think it's fair to say that over the course of the last few decades, even if women were getting these sort of surgeries, they didn't really speak about sexual dysfunction and sexual function or pleasure wasn't really a priority in mainstream world. It um, it was something that women didn't seem to have any sort of nearly validity in wanting to have sexual function. And like the thing that springs to mind, which is a completely different topic, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole and it's another podcast for another day. But if we talk briefly about the topic of female genital mutilation, which is actually something, a practice that's illegal, and it happens in a lot of um, traditions and cultures where young adolescent girls are often having parts of their female genital anatomy cut from them either for purposes of cleanliness or to control libidos is another thing that it's um, quoted to do. And so it's that idea of women not being entitled to even have a libido or sexual function or sexual drive. And I think that 
that's the problem. I think discussions like this and you stepping forward and doing your advocacy and people supporting that and getting behind that are the things that suddenly bring a topic that was never fully understood to the forefront. And only then can we get change because the only thing I would like to highlight is that, and I think that this is the same in your advocacy work, this is not a witch hunt or anything like that. It's more about bringing awareness and and bringing change to an area. And we know that anyone who goes into the medical profession generally has a duty of care and wants to help people. And that's what brought them to that profession in the first place. So they don't set out to harm people. They don't set out to purposely ruin sexual function in women. But when we're starting to recognize things that can happen, practices need to evolve and develop so that we can keep those sort of um, oaths that many medical professions professions take, such as first do no harm, because that's the ethos of their whole practice. So it needs to evolve. What would you think about that? Yeah, I definitely agree. I also think, you know, the reason the anatomy has been excluded is because of taboo. And I also think it's why you don't hear from many victims like me talking about what happened to me was so hard. And I actually, you know, I observed the problem with surgeons not knowing the anatomy back in 2010. You know, I looked at the OBGYN literature and the plastic surgery literature, and I saw that they were doing these surgeries without knowledge of anatomy. I saw that the nerves in the clitoris, the nerves that were damaged in my surgery, were not even in OBGYN literature at all. And I wanted to change it, but I didn't know how. And my first idea was to write to my original surgeon and ask him to please get it changed. And he responded by blaming me, denying that he performed the clitoral hood reduction at all. He said he stayed far away from my clitoral hood and frenulum even though it's really obvious he cut the I mean, there are visible scars and it's really obvious the frenulum was cut because they're just too, I mean, it's very obvious. Uh, and he said he was surprised how quote unquote atrophied my labia minora were. Atrophy is when they shrink on their own. Uh, he amputated them. So he really took no responsibility for what he did and he was unwilling to help me change anything. Um, and this man is, I don't know if I mentioned, but he was president of the Texas Medical Association, president of the Dallas County Medical Society. This guy has been called a quote unquote doctor's doctor, which is why he was my surgeon, because my father is a plastic surgeon and my dad went around and asked who would be the best OBGYN surgeon. And my doctor was recommended by the head of the OBGYN department. One thing that happens frequently is people blame me for what happened to me. They say I didn't do my research and I should have chosen a better doctor. I think this is one way that victims are silenced. If a plastic surgeon can't pick a safe surgeon for his own daughter, there's clearly a problem. You know, it's definitely more difficult to make sure you're safe than it should be. A lot of surgeons who claim that, of course, they know the anatomy, that they've had training they also demonstrate that they're ignorant of the anatomy. <laughs> so the same surgeons who will say, oh, well, yeah, a lot of surgeons don't know what they're doing, but I do. I was trained and, you know, I'm sorry you had a bad outcome, but I've helped so many women. They then turn around and describe the anatomy incorrectly. 
they will turn around and describe dangerous surgical techniques. It is ridiculous. This one surgeon, I forget if he's a plastic surgeon or an OBGYN, but he said he avoids dorsal nerve injuries by operating at the top of the clitoral hood. He thinks that the dorsal nerves are deep under the top of the clitoral hood, but they aren't. (laughs) They're just like a couple millimeters under the skin. And it's crazy that he doesn't know this. But, you know, one problem is a lot of diagrams in textbooks are incorrect. And a lot of diagrams leave out the course of nerves in the clitoris. And so that's how you end up with ignorant surgeons, I guess. Yeah. Um, But yeah, as far as all the taboo, I never thought that I would be able to talk about vulvas or clitorises publicly. I never thought that that would be okay. And I was really crippled for so long by the fact that I didn't think I was allowed to talk about what happened to me. So I used to wish that it had happened to my arm or my leg because then I thought I would be able to talk about it. I just, I thought that there was no way I could tell people that my vulva had been damaged. And so it was this trauma that I had to carry alone. (laughs) I couldn't tell anyone what was going on with me. And so I actually ended up socially isolating for years because I didn't think that anyone would understand. When I first started talking about what happened to me to therapists and to my parents, I was asked what the big deal was. I was told to stop making mountains out of molehills. I was told I was obsessed with sex. And I was told I wasn't dealing with it right because of another trauma that happened when I was 15. So it was like, the fact that I had lost sexual function wasn't something that was considered important to the people that I turned to for help coping. (laughs) Mm. And it's really crazy that it wasn't because what happened to me is so terrible. And so I just, it was like, I had no voice. (laughs) And then, you know, I did talk to an ex-boyfriend who was in medical school and he wanted me to start talking about it. And, you know, maybe I should have listened to him because he said, Jessica, as soon as you start talking about this, you will realize people will support you. But I was so afraid. And I said to him, there is no way I can talk about, sorry, I said to him, there is no way I can talk about what happened to me. And he said, okay, then just talk about it as an academic interest. He said, just say, you know, you're an expert on the clitoris and talk about it like that. And so I tried to talk to his medical school friends at a bar and I still felt incredibly, incredibly humiliated and like they must have thought I was a pervert. And I went home and I cried afterwards. And it's really sad because, you know, I wish I could go back and just encourage myself to be a little bit stronger. But I had been raised to think that you know, it just was not appropriate to talk about vulvas. And I was so afraid of being seen as a pervert. Like, I was so afraid of what people would think. And I remember when I first finally posted about the clitoris on Medium in 2018, I was so scared. And then I put it on my Facebook. And I remember when I posted it on Facebook, I was almost shaking. Like, I was so nervous. and. I just had this rush of adrenaline, like, oh no, what will happen? And then I posted it and it ended up being okay. But I was 
really self-conscious about it because, you know, Facebook is like where everyone who knows me is. I, you know, I still get self-conscious about it, but it is amazing how many people tell me, no, it's not awkward. No, it's not weird. I think maybe because I was raised in Texas, like this has been extra hard for me. It's actually amazing how many people will listen. I still think that, you know, we don't talk about female genitals as much because of these taboos. And I think the fundamental problem is, uh, you know, male sexual function is legitimized by it being reproductive function. And female sexual function is not seen as reproductive, basically. Like, you know, the clitoris is not seen as being reproductive anatomy. I had a medical student in 2012 tell me that vulvar anatomy was not covered in his medical school because vulvar anatomy is not as medically relevant as penile anatomy because female orgasm is not medically relevant to reproduction. (laughs) And I mean, that's what's fundamentally behind all of this. And if you look at OBGYN literature, um, you know, until 2019 in the top OBGYN surgery textbook, they said that a lack of clitoral sensation did not seem to impact patients' later sexual behavior. They said that sexual function seemed satisfactory after cutting the dorsal nerves of the clitoris, after cutting the nerve supply to the clitoral glands. That was in the top OBGYN surgery textbook. There were also claims throughout OBGYN literature like that patients should be able to resume normal sexual function after, after radical vulvectomy. The fundamental idea behind all this is that female sexual pleasure and orgasm wasn't seen as important to sexual function. And if you look at the way that female sexual function and dysfunction gets covered in OBGYN literature, you know, they'll say things like orgasm may not be important for sexual satisfaction. There's a lot more focus on relationships and emotions, and there's very little focus on anatomy and physiology. This is in huge contrast to the way that male sexual function and dysfunction are approached. Literature on male sexual function and dysfunction goes over really, really detailed penile anatomy and physiology. It's all about how the penis works. But female sexual dysfunction is approached very differently. And in order to be considered dysfunction, the woman has to have distress. It's just, it's like all they're worried about is that women are able to be penetrated. One thing that I did back in the day when I hadn't started advocating, but I had plans to advocate and I didn't know what to do. So I would just sit around and read the literature and analyze it and try and figure out how I would explain to people that there was a problem. So I had no idea how I would ever talk about any of this stuff, but I, but I knew that I had to figure it out. <laughs> so I would just sit around. And I remember I felt so crazy about all of it. But I would sit around and just think, okay, how can I convince people there's a problem? So one thing I did is I went through the top OBGYN journals and I looked at, I mean, I just searched the term sexual function and I looked at every article with the term sexual function and I tried to categorize the context, the word, the term was in. And most of the time, it just meant penetration without pain. It was all very focused on penetration and it almost never referred to clitoral function (laughs) or orgasm. Uh, 
it would refer to satisfaction or the ability to be penetrated without pain. And like, yes, it's important to not have pain during sex, but there wasn't much focus on female sexual response beyond just lubrication. You know, like what they should be focusing on, in my opinion, is more like vascular engorgement and orgasm and how that works. And that is what's missing. Absolutely. And um, I think that's all really, really important and valid. And hopefully that's get this discussions like this are getting that message out there. I want to ask Jessica, am I right in thinking, did you did you enter medical college at one stage? Um, did you study uh, medicine at some stage and not finish? No, I did biomedical engineering in college and I was pre-med. So okay, pre-med. I took pre-med classes, but people need to understand pre-med doesn't really teach you anything about medicine. <laughs> Um, I read that somewhere so I wasn't sure because the systems are just slightly different here and it's funny because if we think about the different systems in the UK and the USA another thing that we can highlight and that becomes very apparent when discussing your situation is we have a very public-led system over here so the NHS is free and with that and with the funding involved in that there's huge clinical governance and standards of care and um, you know, there's huge scrutiny through all procedures and interventions that are taken. And I think that that might be some of the changes because am I right in thinking it's predominantly privatized healthcare in the USA? Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose with that comes com- comes competition, comes business, comes profits. And all that there is uh, an essential bias to certain approaches and things. Would you agree? Yeah, that's why all the best research on why women seek labioplasty and on who seeks labioplasty come from the NHS. So there's one study of well women seeking surgery under the NHS, and it was there were 33 women. 66 percent of them were virgins. The average age was 23. So that's super relevant to me. That's who I think is really having these surgeries. When they do studies in the U.S., they are done only by the most expensive experts. And so their samples tend to be skewed older because that's who can afford a $5,000 labioplasty. But in my opinion, most women seeking these surgeries are much younger. You see a lot of surgeons anecdotally saying that their happiest patients are 18 to 22. I find that disturbing. I think that that population is simply the least likely to realize when they've been harmed because they tend to be less sexually active. They don't know their bodies as well. And they will more likely, I think, say that they're satisfied because they just don't know what to say. I know that after my surgery, according to my doctor, I said I was satisfied. I don't remember that. I probably just felt put on the spot and didn't know what to say. I know I felt extremely uncomfortable with him and I switched doctors after so um I didn't see him again I saw his partner and I told his partner that I had lost um that I had lost sensation and she told me that that could not have happened gosh well where are you at with everything now in terms of your advocacy because I think you're soon to have changed 18 textbooks with um, clitoral anatomy. So congratulations. That's amazing. And obviously, no? Well, so that was a little premature and I may need to change it. Okay. 
So recently, the new edition of Gray's Anatomy, Anatomical Basis for Clinical Practice came out. And technically, I did change it because now they at least cite that study that was published in the American Journal of OBGYN of the innervation of the clitoris. And so they cite that study, but they do not cover the content in the study. So they still do not cover the innervation of the clitoris. Um, I'm interested to know if you thought of approaching it in a, in a different way, and perhaps you have, um, and I'd like to explore that. Have you considered the education that girls are receiving around their anatomy? Because this is something Gronya and I talk about a lot. Um, the fact that women consider their vagina to be their vagina and not their vulva. Um, they, you know, the amount of women I see in clinic who have never looked at their vulva area until they've had a baby and then they look at it and they think, oh my goodness, this is, this is what, what's happened during childbirth. And you think, well, hang on, actually, this is all, these are normal changes. Um, and I think it's really valuable that women are looking particularly uh, pre-baby at their, their vulva. I'm just wondering if you've if, if you've approached the education system for for kids and 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 if you have how have you had any resistance to that or is that just not an area you're thinking of going down? I have thought about that. I guess I don't know how mm. to change that. Like I don't know who determines what sex education students get in schools. And so my problem is. I tend to think that no matter what happens, women will still be getting female genital cosmetic surgery. Some women actually need to be getting labioplasty for medical reasons. Um, There will also be other procedures done on vulvas. You know, sometimes vulvas get injured and they need to be repaired. Women will also always need to be getting biopsies if their doctors suspect cancer. And when these procedures are getting done, as long as doctors are doing them blind to basic anatomy, preventable harm is going to happen. And so that's what I've been trying to stop. But yeah, I do think that it would be better to, you know, educate women at an early age, you know, before cosmetic surgeons can sink their claws in with misinformation. Um, but I just, I don't really know how. I think it's certainly valid in terms of stopping people going down the misinformed route that you took. So at least the females know that all sorts of shapes and sizes and variations are normal with labias, then they're not going to seek unnecessary procedures. It's a totally different discussion then for women who have to have surgery in that region and change still needs to happen. I think having discussions like this on platforms where we hopefully have a multidisciplinary following. So you're looking to raise awareness about this topic to people who've probably never thought about it before. And in a really non-threatening way, I think with anything to do with pelvic health, it can always be a pretty loaded topic. And because, as is mentioned, anyone who goes into this area wants to help people. No one wants to feel or hear that some of the procedures or interventions they've done have caused harm to people. That's a really, people's defense walls will go up straight away. So change has to happen in baby steps. And I certainly think that even the likes of the research you've done has been pretty pioneering in changing that because it is in the medical literature. It's there to stay. No one can get rid of that. You've done a study that will come up in PubMed searches when people are looking at this and 
it does add the credibility factor. And for anyone listening, I actually wanted to highlight what the topic of your or what the title of your paper was. Um, you'll know it up by heart. Oh, Anatomical Dissection of the Dorsal Nerve of the Clitoris. And it's published in Aesthetic Surgery Journal. So if anyone's looking to read it, it's a really interesting read. What I found, and I thought I had quite a good awareness of clitoral anatomy, but it's what you've already touched on, how superficial a lot of those nerve endings become. So they disappear a good bit away from it and it becomes superficial. And that's what you're hearing time and time again in terms of misinformation from people carrying out surgeries where they say they avoided those nerves because they didn't go deep. But your your research yeah. has identified how superficial they are. Yeah, it's not the nerve endings. Did you see how big they are? It's the actual nerve bundles. The, the nerves themselves. So it's the nerves themselves that are at risk because nerve endings can regenerate. But those big nerves that we photographed, those cannot regenerate. So what we found was the clitoral bodies of our specimens were larger than has been previously reported. But unfortunately, we only got measurements from five specimens. However, it is my opinion that for whatever reason, measurements of clitoral anatomy tend to be off. That's, that's my opinion. Like, so I saw in a textbook yesterday, they said the clitoral glands is usually less than five millimeters in diameter. I would disagree with that based on my study because none of our 10 specimens had a clitoral glands that small, like not one of them. <laughs> so, you know, we only had 10 specimens, but I, you know, and unfortunately we did not measure the diameter of the glands, but we did measure the diameter of the clitoral body at the point where the dorsal nerves terminated. And we have photos showing the clitorises we dissected and I was there. <laughs> you know, it's not it's really certainly funny. a call for more research, like anything, even if it is on a small number of samples, if something is showing something different or challenging previous research, it should surely be a research focus for anyone who is in that field researching. So I would like to think that there will be further studies carried out. Um, have you any ambitions to do more research yourself? Um, not really. <laughs> I would like to see people take more measurements of the clitoris. I have concerns about a growing number of women getting clitoroplasty for cosmetic reasons. Um, there's one plastic surgeon who has done hundreds of them. And if you go on Real Self, you can see plastic surgeons recommending clitoroplasty to teenagers who worry that their clitorises are too big. I have concerns because clitoroplasty is super risky. I mean, that means surgery on the clitoris itself. That means they are cutting out a chunk of the clitoris in order to make it smaller. And that's what things have come to now. Um, this is the evolution of female genital cosmetic surgery. It's getting more and more extreme. Um, they're also doing more clitoropexy procedures, which is where they reposition the clitoris to make it stick out less because I guess they want to make sure you can't find it. <laughs> I just think it's hilarious because we joke that the clitoris is already hard to find, you know, <laughs> like God forbid it be too easy to find. They have to <laughs> make it less obvious. So, so yeah, there's this procedure called clitoropexy where they reposition it. And if you look at the literature on clitoropexy techniques, they will describe the anatomy of the dorsal nerves incorrectly. So 
you know, once again, or at least, you know, in this one plastic surgery textbook, they said the way to avoid damaging the dorsal nerves was to, I forget, do something that wasn't going to avoid them at all. And so I had to email them and say, Hey, like you have no idea where they are. Like what, why are you saying this? Um, was that about saying about avoiding between like 12 o'clock and two o'clock or something? There was something you outlined in your paper about where some people said, but you find variation in your sample about where oh, exactly yeah. so they sometimes, went. Sometimes they will say that there's a safe zone at the 12 o'clock position. And it is not reasonable to say that there's a safe zone at the 12 o'clock position because, you know, sometimes the nerves may only be like a millimeter apart. That's not a safe zone. That's not like human Would you speak um, at conferences? Like you've done your published study. Would you apply to speak at conferences where you can stand up and speak to the professionals who need to hear this? So I think I did try to apply to speak at a couple. I don't think that they allow lay people to do that. Mm. I could be wrong. Um, Yeah. I mean, maybe I should try harder. But in general, people, you know, one reason there's resistance is because I'm not a doctor. And that's not something I really foresaw. You know, back in 2010, I told my dad that I needed to change these problems. And I asked him if he thought getting an MD would help. I was trying to decide whether to go to medical school at the time. And I couldn't decide because I didn't really have much interest in treating one patient at a time. I tend to think in terms of systems, you know, so I'll see the big picture. And that's why, like for me, in understanding why what happened to me happened, it's not about one surgeon. Like so many people, they don't understand. They're like, why are you attacking OBGYNs and plastic surgeons instead of just the one doctor who operated on you? And it's, it's because like what happened to me happened because of systemic problems that I've observed in their literature and in their training curricula and in their privileging policies, right? So OBGYN, neither OBGYNs nor plastic surgeons are typically trained in female general cosmetic surgery and residency, but they are all considered qualified and eligible for privileges at most surgery centers in the country. And that's something that my father and I have tried to get changed unsuccessfully. Um, one problem is the American Board of OBGYN actually tells surgery centers that all OBGYNs are qualified to do female genital surgeries of, I think, all types. They all get lumped together as vulvectomy. You know, one problem so, vulvectomy is a cancer surgery done for women who have vulvar cancer. And, you know, one argument I've gotten for why OBGYNs don't need to learn clitoral anatomy is because, you know, they'll say they don't need to know it for vulvectomy because they just have to cut out what they need to cut out, you know, based on cancer margins. <laughs> but then their training in vulvectomy is considered sufficient to qualify them to do labiaplasty. <laughs> so it's like, so the argument is, well, if we're just removing things to get rid of cancer, we don't need to know the anatomy. But if we've been trained to remove things for cancer, then we've been then we have enough training to do female genital cosmetic surgery on well women with no cancer. <laughs> the logic is just really nuts. 
This is a really, really loaded topic and you can see how already it's touched on so many elements that are important to raise in terms of informed consent, in terms of anatomical understanding, in terms of clinical governance, but also dealing with side effects because all procedures carry risk of side effects. But what happens when someone comes forward with some sort of issue after the surgery? How is it dealt with and is it dealt with appropriately? I think we could talk to you all day, Jessica. I think this is really, really interesting. And I certainly look forward to following your campaign to change and to supporting you in that journey. I think it'd be really interesting to revisit this discussion down the line at some stage to see where you're at um, with your with your campaign to change. Wanted to highlight that slightly different target audience, but Emma is has taken a huge step forward into some of that change because she's recently become the publisher of her first book um, called Why Did No One Tell Me? And it seeks to inform women more so to do with the perinatal stage and before they have a baby, but to inform them about their female anatomy and about what trauma and change can come with pregnancy and childbirth so that they don't have to suffer in silence. And so I, I think that that's quite commendable. And she has a wonderful picture of a clitoral, a clitoral body in it. Um, so I think that that's one step forward. Emma, have you anything to add to that? No, I wanted to check before uh, we spoke, Jessica, that my diagram was um, w- would would meet with your uh, approval. Um, I must, I have to send you um, a copy. I, th- I think it would when I compare it to everything that you um, you publish on on Twitter and that you have published scientifically. Uh, but I think the problem with pelvic health is such that we are all facing taboo. Um, Women are too embarrassed to talk about these things. And the strongest thing that comes out for me in this conversation is just how brave you are about, you know, doing what you're doing, because you didn't ask for this. You certainly, I'm sure, in an ideal world, wouldn't be wanting to be in the position you're in to have to talk to us about this. And yet you've been knocked back. You've had people be quite damning and you've almost been vilified with what you're doing as well at certain parts and at certain times and I just think I think you're incredible for continuing on and where you find the energy to do what you do I don't know where do you find the time where (laughs) how do you keep going because you're not having the smoothest pathway to getting your message across so you know for women out there who are potentially in slightly different situations to you, but where where does it where does this drive come from? How is there anything you can share with women to to help them fight their causes? I see it as getting justice for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's because I see myself in the other women who might be feeling like there's something wrong with their vulvas today, and who might be seeking surgery today and getting harmed. For me, it's like if I can get justice for them, if I can protect them, it affirms that what happened to me never should have happened. Um, You know, what I said somewhere on Instagram is today there's some woman on the operating table and there's a surgeon doing surgery that they have not been trained to do on anatomy they don't know. And that woman does not deserve to get harmed. And I didn't deserve to get harmed. And if I can protect her, if I can protect, you know, women in the future, that is an affirmation of my dignity 
and of the fact that I should have been protected. So I guess my position is, you know, women deserve better and I deserved better, right? I don't want anyone else to have to go through what I went through. And if I can stop it from happening, it is an affirmation of my dignity as a human being, right? (laughs) It's hard to explain, but this is my definition of justice. My definition of justice Mm -hmm. is solving the problem. If you look at what most victims of medical errors need in the wake of harm, you know, according to research, what they say is victims of medical errors typically want acknowledgement of the harm that was done and something done to prevent it from happening to others. And so that's what I wanted. And I've had to make that happen myself. Right. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's where my energy comes from. It's, yeah, it's like, okay, sorry. But, you know, like dealing with what happened to me was so difficult. Um, You know, I got through college, but I kept telling myself I would find a way, you know, I would find a way to get justice somehow. And at the end of college, I decided I would not move on with my life until I had gotten justice. And I had to think about what that would mean. And I had to ask myself, you know, what would it take for me to be okay? Because, you know, throughout college, I struggled a lot with depression. And sometimes, you know, I would just start crying and feel you know, I would feel like I couldn't get out of bed or I would feel like, you know, I just didn't know how I was going to live and be happy given what had happened. And, you know, I had to try and figure out how. And one thing that happened was, you know, for my senior design project, I worked with people who had spinal cord injuries. And that really led me to think a lot about like how do people who have gotten paralyzed, how do they have happy lives, you know, and what helps them be at peace with whatever happened to them? And I just, you know, basically I just needed to figure out how I could be at peace with what happened to me and the way, you know, what I decided is I needed to be able to change the reasons why it happened. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it does. And it's incredibly inspiring. And you're very generous with sharing your time with us today again um, to talk about your story. And truly can't thank you enough. It's 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 um it's it's a real honor to talk to you about it. Um yeah, thank you for sharing all of this with us. Jessica, where can people find you? If anyone wants to follow your story, where can they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at Mediclit, M-E-D-I-C-L-I-T. And I'm on Instagram at Jessica underscore Ann, A-N-N underscore Pin, P-I-N. Brilliant. I'm sure lots of people will be tuning into that. You've been fabulous. Um, Your story really hits home with us and it totally 
fits with as I say everything we want to do to lift the lid and all these issues that aren't spoken about so thanks for that again and we look forward to talking to you in the future okay thank you thank you thank you for listening to episode six we really hope you're enjoying the podcast if you are we would love for you to review it on the channel that you're listening to us on now It helps us spread the word about the podcast and, of course, then spread the word about pelvic health. If you want to connect and find out more about Jessica Pinn, do head to our show notes where you'll also find a link to her research paper. If you want to buy my book, Why Did No One Tell Me How to Protect, Heal and Nurture Your Body Through Motherhood, you can do this via Amazon or any other good bookseller. The podcast is for you. And we want you to get in touch with us, send us questions, send us feedback. We will get back to you if you contact us via our Instagram, which is at at your cervix underscore the podcast, on Twitter at your cervix underscore PM, or just email us at your cervix at physio-matters.com. We really look forward to hearing from you. Join us next month for episode seven. Thanks for listening.